Thank you, worship team. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Are we, uh, we on this morning? All right, excellent. Um, if you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 24. And while you're doing that, I just want to say welcome to Palm Sunday. This is Palm Sunday, and in history, this was the day that Jesus rode into town on a donkey, and everybody was just singing praises. And I'm just so thankful for Justin reading that passage because it, it covers like the, the entire thing all the way up until the message that we're going to give this morning, which is Matthew 24. I think about those, those closing words in that section that, um, that, that Justin read. That Jesus just saying, would that you even had known the day that makes for peace. Jesus came to bring peace, and because he was rejected, Jesus says this, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the day of visitation. Jesus came, he presented himself, and he was rejected, and that brought on the nation of Israel devastation and destruction. And we're going to actually read a section this morning where Jesus talks about how do we know when the times are going to end. And Jesus is going to sit on the Mount of Olives, and he's going to look over at Jerusalem with his disciples and talk about how that city is going to be destroyed One of the things that uh, Luke tells us in Luke 19, which uh, just comes a short time before uh, Justin, that section that Justin read, um, just before that, it says, Jesus says this, and as as they heard these things, as Jesus talking about his disciples, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Jesus' disciples, have they're seeing Jesus ride into town. They're seeing everybody sing praises and shout Hosanna. And then Jesus goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple and, and he preaches and he addresses the Pharisees. And we've looked at what Jesus has said to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, where he just, he talks about them to the crowd and then he pronounces judgment on them, just this strong judgment And his disciples are thinking, this is it. Jesus has come. He is going to set up his kingdom. And what they don't realize is that they, within a week, will be devastated. And next week, we celebrate the resurrection. So the Pharisees on Friday will watch Jesus be crucified. We'll celebrate the Lord's Supper on Friday as we dwell on the fact that Jesus died for our sins. And then on Sunday, Jesus raises from the dead, and we're going to be talking about victory. Jesus provides victory. Uh, When you think about the fact that Jesus has power over life and death, Jesus has power over eternity, when you have the power of life, you have the power over everything. And so that's what we'll be talking about from 1 Corinthians 15 on Easter Sunday. But today we're going to think about the message that Jesus is going to give his disciples, they're, they're looking around and, and they're evaluating Jerusalem and, and you'll see this and they're, they're kind of scouting out their territory. It's like somebody who's going to look at a house that they just bought or their property and the disciples are sitting there and they're looking around and going, man, look at this wonderful place. It's going to be ours. And, and as they look at that, Jesus in Matthew 24, the passage we're going to go through, tells them, that everything that they think is not going to happen. He says, this, this town that you think is so wonderful is going to be destroyed. And so we'll look at the historical account of that and Jesus' message for us as we consider the fact that Jesus is coming back. And I'll just tell you, it is a massively encouraging doctrine that, that Jesus died, that he rose, that he ascended to heaven, and that he's coming back. That helps us as believers understand that Jesus has the victory. We have hope. It does not matter how things seem, but we are victorious because we're with Jesus. But it is also a sobering reality because while it's a 
a doctrine of incredible hope, it is also a doctrine of warning. Because when Jesus comes back, for some people, that is incredible hope. For others, that will be utter devastation. And so that actually is something that informs the way we live. It informs our perspective. I think about Easter, and we, we did, uh, you know, saturate where we went around, and we actually, as a church, Foothills Church, delivered an invitation to every single house in Rancho Santa Margarita. Um, uh, Val helped us get the addresses of every house, and we calculated out every neighborhood, and we went and we delivered an invitation to every single home in this city saying, come to Foothills, come learn about Jesus. And it was really awesome to see the response. When we did that two years ago, there probably wasn't a Sunday that I didn't sit here and walk in and see two or three people that had visited from somewhere and just said, oh yeah, I got this little flyer on my door. Well, this, this year for Easter, we've um, given you some flyers. And actually, our purpose this year is not to blanket all of Rancho Santa Margarita. It's not to go into a neighborhood and invite everybody. Our purpose this year is that you would pray for your neighbors. You know, one of the reasons that we visit um, businesses in town is we want our town, we want people to know that we love them, that we're praying for them, that, that we, we're, we don't just want them to come here, you know, for us. We care about them. And that's why it's so important for us to go try to visit these businesses and to tell them. And one of the things, so we want to bless our, our city. We want them to know we're here and we care about them. We want to reflect the love of Christ. But the other thing is that for us as believers, that we will remember every time we walk into a business, every time we're shopping, not just the business that we're announcing, but every time we go anywhere, we need to see people eternally. We need to have a desire to share the gospel. We need to remember when you're sitting at a table and your waitress messes up your order, that your order is not the priority in life. Your waitress's eternal destiny is far more important. And so this year we've given you some flyers and it's not because we want to blanket the neighborhood, but we want you to pray for your neighbors. We want you to take those cards and either go drop them off or you don't even have to say anything to your neighbors. Go hang it on the door of your neighbors. Like I'm looking, I just moved into a new neighborhood. And so I'm going to cover a few doors to the right and a few doors to the left and all the doors across the street. And I'm going to invite people to come to Foothills. And part of that is that we need to remember that God put us in our neighborhood to reach our neighbors. And the next time your neighbor stores their car in front of your house, remember that your parking convenience is not the priority. Reaching people with the gospel is the priority. Hey, it's way easier to go hand out flyers and stick them on the doors of people you don't know. It's a little more personal when you're doing it with the person who lives next door to you. So I realize it's risky and it can be challenging, something that simple. But we need to remember that we are here for a purpose. And as we think about what Jesus is going to say in Matthew 24, it's going to remind us of the urgency of reaching people. It's going to remind us of the perspective that you and I need to have as we look at life, as we look at culture, as we consider what's happening on the news and kind of how it feels to be a believer, a faithful believer today. So let's, uh, let's jump into this passage. And I, I want to just start by this. Considering the return of Jesus is something that for some should be terrifying. Like in the book of Amos, um, Amos says to um, the people in Israel, he says, you're looking forward to the day of the return of Christ. You're excited about it. You're looking forward to it. And he says, you should not be. It is a terrible day for you. It's going to be a day of darkness and not a day of light. And so the return of Christ for people who have hardened their heart against God, for people who say, no, I will live life my way, that is a terrifying day. But for you and I, 
We struggle in this life. We have challenges. Sometimes we feel persecuted. Sometimes we feel like we're losing the cultural battle and everybody's against us and I might lose my job and and people aren't going to like me and if I say this, it's so culturally unpopular. But when we think about the return of Christ, it is encouraging, it is exciting, it is motivating. Let me, let me read you Jesus' words from John chapter 14, and then I promise we are going to get to Matthew 24. John chapter 14, I want to just read you these three words, these three verses. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Man, what encouraging words. When you look at John chapter 16, the disciples were so stressed out. They're like, Jesus, you're leaving. Where are you going? And Jesus was like, it's going to be okay. I'm coming back. I am not leaving you as an orphan. And so for us to remember that Jesus loves us, he is with us, whether we feel it or not, but we know that practically and physically he is coming back for us. That is exciting. Okay. Um, Let's jump into Matthew chapter 24 and let's consider what Jesus has to say here. The first thing, and and this really comes on the heels of Matthew 23, is that rejecting Jesus has devastating consequences. Rejecting Jesus has devastating consequences. Um, Let me just, I'm going to read the first uh, two verses and then we're going to talk about the significance of these verses. It's, it's incredible. So Jesus left the temple, Matthew 24, 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to, came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, here's where they're scouting out their territory. Jesus is leaving. He's going to go over to the Mount of Olives, and you have this nice view of of Israel, or I'm sorry, of Jerusalem. I'll show you a few of those pictures in a moment. But they're sitting there and, and they're looking and they're saying, oh my goodness, look how wonderful this temple is. Look at the buildings, they're so just amazing. And then Jesus says this in verse two, but he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. I'm just telling you, that was shocking to the disciples. That made absolutely no sense that this would be destroyed. When we think about the destruction, man, it's going to motivate us to evangelize. Uh, I think about um, the Apostle Paul where he says, I've become all things to all people that by some means I might save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel. When you think about what it means to shake your fist in God's face, that will give you a passion to reach everybody you love and care about with the gospel. I'll tell you, not just that. That informs when we think about God's judgment, the fact that he is going to talk about Jerusalem being destroyed, and we'll think about why that was destroyed. When we think about that, that also inspires us to live rightly with each other. When you think about the world that we're in, when you think about what it means to be a faithful believer, people who sacrifice relationships, people who are sometimes hated by family members, people who potentially lose their job, and you think about the fact that these brothers and sisters in Christ are the ones who show up on Sunday morning. We love each other, like Hebrews 10, right? What does that talk about? Don't forsake the assembling together as, the, as is the habit of some, but encourage one another all the more. Why? Because we see the day approaching. You know, think about the petty disagreements and the way that we can treat each other on, the, on Sunday morning instead of going, no, we are in a spiritual battle. Eternity is at stake. When I see people on Sunday morning, I want to love them. I want to encourage them. I, I want to be a blessing to them. I'm not going to nitpick people. Like when we think about these things, 
it gets our attention. So I just want to point out a few things. Um, you know, rejecting Jesus has devastating consequences. And Jesus is going to destroy Jerusalem. You know, Jesus does predict it, but Jesus doesn't just predict it. He actually raises up a force to destroy Jerusalem. Now, um, just, I just want to say this. Jerusalem being destroyed in 70 AD is what we're going to talk about here. That is not the first time Jerusalem was destroyed. You know, Jesus raised up Nebuchadnezzar and said, go destroy Jerusalem. They were wicked. They, they were hard-hearted. And God said, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm going to raise you up. You are a wicked, evil man. You are massively powerful, and I'm going to send you to destroy Israel. And actually, God says to the, the Jewish king at the time, he says, do not resist Nebuchadnezzar. I am sending him to punish you for your sinfulness. Don't resist him. And if you don't resist him, you'll live. But if you do resist him, it'll be devastating. <laughs> you want to know what the king of Israel did when he told him that? The king of Israel just decided, yeah, I don't care. I'm, I'm fighting against Nebuchadnezzar. And um, he was in the habit of disobeying God. So this is what happens to that king. Nebuchadnezzar takes all of his sons, lines up all of his sons in front of them, hacks them to death with a sword, and then he takes something and pokes out the king's eyes and takes him back to Babylon. And he just says, the last thing you will ever see is your whole family being slaughtered. And so God, this is not the first time that God has sent devastating destruction on Jerusalem. And so um, here's the deal. Um, we see that God destroys Jerusalem because the religious leaders and the Jewish people rebelled against God. In Matthew 23, um, Jesus talks about how I've sent prophets. I've sent people to bring my word and you've killed them and you've persecuted them. Um, also, he destroyed them because they refused to repent. You remember how Matthew 23 ends with Jesus just saying that I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her children, but you were not willing? See, even though they had done all these terribly sinful things, they could have been forgiven had they repented, but they refused to. And their destruction that we're going to see here is going to be totally devastating. It is totally devastating. You know, a lot of people, when they present the gospel, they say, Jesus has a wonderful plan for your life. This, this is what he wants you. And by the way, that is true. Jesus does have a wonderful plan for your life. But it's not like pursue your fun or get something a little better. It's Jesus. That's actually not the choice Jesus gives anybody. Jesus' choice is you can have total blessing and unimaginable joy and love from God and guidance from a powerful, wise, loving, heavenly Father. That's option one. Option two is total devastation and destruction and torment forever. You know, God gives us two options, and I just want you to know, if you really understand the options, it's kind of easy to make the choice you should make. And Jesus actually has, throughout history, given us examples of what it means to follow Christ and be blessed and what it means to harden your heart and rebel against God. You know, Matthew 23, 38, Jesus says to the Pharisees, he says, See, your house is left to you desolate. And then it says here in Matthew 24, 1, he says, Jesus left the temple, and as he was going away, when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them, and he said, I say to you truly, there will not be one left here, one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. Now, um, that actually is fulfilled in 70 A.D., um, Nero sends uh, his generals and they're going out and fighting and, and then um, Nero ends up killing himself and his general becomes the next Caesar and his general's son, whose name is Titus, actually comes in and destroys Jerusalem in 70 AD. We have a historical account of that. Now, Josephus, Josephus was like a Jewish, uh, he was a Jewish man who was actually leading a rebellion against uh, the Romans and they conquered him, and then he kind of turned 
and, uh, and rejected Israel and just kind of said, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll be on your side. And, and, and we look in history and it sees that, that Josephus actually won the favor of the Romans and they let him live. And then him, you know, he's joined forces with the Romans and now he records the histories, the only eyewitness of the destruction of Jerusalem. And he writes about it. There's another historian named Eusebius who writes about it, but he writes about it like 150 years later. And, and uh, Josephus is the only eyewitness account. And he actually describes this destruction. And um, so this is, um, this is the, today, this is the, the Temple Mount. And you know that there's a mosque, a, a mosque in that spot. That is where the Jewish temple used to be. And that's called the Dome of the Rock. And if you look all the way across the valley, you can see where, where it says the Mount of Olives. And so Jesus has walked out of Jerusalem, and he, he and his disciples are actually sitting on the Mount, Mount of Olives, and they're looking at Jerusalem, and they're looking at the temple. And this is just a little bit off. You can see off to the left side there on the bottom, there's some trees. That's the Mount of Olives. And so, so today, this is kind of what it would look like. Now, they've built a model of what the temple may have looked like in the day of Jesus, and this is actually that temple, and it's kind of from the angle that Jesus and the disciples would have been looking at the temple. So they're looking at this, and the disciples are thinking, oh man, this is our city, Jesus is coming in, he's taking over, and and this is what they're looking at as Jesus talks to his disciples. And you can see some of these buildings. Um, Solomon built this area over here. Of course, that, that Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 BC. And then this is like a picture of what they imagine that the temple might have looked like. They've tried to reconstruct that. So this is a model that's actually there in Jerusalem that you can go look at. And so this is kind of what that would have looked at. It's what, it's what they would have been looking at. And here's the amazing thing. The Jewish temple was this incredible building. In fact, Titus, and it's interesting that Josephus says this. By the way, when we read history, like history from Josephus, or when we read history from other people, it is not reliable the way the Bible is reliable, right? So as we read history, we read it with you know, um, kind of a sense of hesitation in a sense, and we read it and we go, okay, is this true or not? And and so when I read this account, um, you know, Josephus tells us that Titus did not want to destroy the temple. Um, In fact, this is what it says. This is what Josephus says about Titus. But Titus said that although the Jews should get upon that holy house and fight us from there, Yet ought we not to revenge ourselves on things that are inanimate instead of the men themselves, and that he was not in any case for burning down so vast a work as that was, because this would be a mischief to the Romans themselves, and it would be an ornament to their government while it continued. So Josephus records that Titus says, let's not destroy the buildings, let's not destroy the temple. Even if the Jews get on top of the temple and fight from there, let's just kill them, let's not destroy the temple. Now, I read that, and that's very possibly true, but also, maybe Titus didn't want to seem brutal. So he gets, Joseph and, or gets Josephus and says, hey, when you're telling the story, present me in a good light. By the way, did you know that that's the kind of thing that happens in history? Have you ever heard who writes history? The people who win the wars. And so when they describe the battles, are they going to present themselves in a good light or a bad light? See, that's the difference between secular history and biblical history. Every single thing that you read in the Bible is 100% accurate. When you read the story of King David, it is not whitewashed. God tells it like it happens. But what I find amazing is that there are Christians who will dig up history that contradicts something in the Bible, and they side with history against the Bible. I'm just telling you that is a fundamental misunderstanding of Scripture. Scripture is the standard by which we measure everything. And so Josephus, he tells this story, and basically as Josephus is describing the destruction of Jerusalem, it is brutal. Uh, They come and they line up around it, and actually it happened around Passover, and so um, uh, Titus just realizing, hey, they could could defend, they could fight from the, the 
from Jerusalem. So actually there were a bunch of Jews coming for Passover and Titus actually lets them into the city. And after they all go into the city and now it's highly populated, he surrounds it. Do you know why he let them in? He let them in because they only had a certain amount of food and water. And so if he cut that city off, the more people inside there, the sooner they would starve to death, the sooner they would die of thirst. And so he just let a massive amount of people go in there. Then he surrounded them. He cut them off and just started systematically destroying and attacking the city. In fact, when they broke into the city, they just find, found rooms full of people who had died of starvation. And so they went in there, and it was just incredibly brutal. And as they're fighting, um, Josephus records that, that they're burning different parts of the city and somebody actually is getting over by the temple and they're about to light it on fire and, and he's yelling to everybody, don't burn the temple, don't burn down the temple. And he's trying to send people, but there's such confusion, it's so loud that they don't hear and they're just, they're fighting and, and a Roman soldier, somebody picks him up and he takes this piece of wood and he throws it into the temple and he lights it on fire. And the Jews that are standing there fighting, the moment they see that the temple is burning, they, they abandon all fighting and they just go try to put the fire out in the temple. And tight, So the Jews are trying to put the fire out into the temple and Titus is saying, don't burn the temple. And, and as those Jews are trying to do that, the Romans are just running in and they're just killing them and slaughtering them as this is happening. And, and the temple ends up burning. And in fact, when they describe Jerusalem, Josephus just says, that city that was so well built, you could plow a field. He says it was incredibly beautiful, and after it was destroyed, it was so destroyed that a person who had been there before and who saw it would go stand on that same spot and say, uh, where's Jerusalem? <laughs> Where is it? It was gone. It was wiped off the mat. That's what happens. That was earthly devastation. Um, they, they killed people. One of the things that they did is they would take Jews as they were trying to leave, and they would just crucify them, sometimes multiple people on a cross. Like they'd crucify one person to the front, one person to the back, and they just lined up um, all these people in the front of Jerusalem. And their intention was, we want you to see what it means if you fight against us. It was utterly brutal. Now, it was so brutal that there are people who have studied this time. They, they read the things that is described in Matthew chapter 24. They read the things that were described in the book of Revelation. Anybody read the book of Revelation? People read that, and, and amillennialists, that's one of the views of eschatology, but amillennialists will say that this destruction of Jerusalem was so bad that actually everything described in the book of Revelation already happened. And everything in uh, Matthew chapter 24, it already happened. All of that is talking about 70 AD, the destruction of Jerusalem. So the point that I want to make, first of all, I completely disagree with that. But here's the point. What happened in 70 AD was terrible. It was devastating. It was unbelievable unbelievably brutal and unbelievably bad and it came upon the nation of Israel because they rejected Jesus remember in Matthew I think it was Matthew 21 where Jesus is telling that parable and he just says that he calls himself the rock and he says anybody who falls on this rock will be broken and on whomever this rock falls they will be crushed remember that well, that's what we see. Now, here's the, as you take a step back and you think about this, Jesus gives this message right after he's ridden into Jerusalem when he's demonstrated um, his power by cleansing the temple. And within a few days, Jesus is going to be nailed to a cross. He is going to die. His disciples are going to see him die. They're going to be shattered. In fact, they're so shattered, do you want to know what they do? They go back to fishing. They're, they're so disillusioned. Like, I can't believe this. And I want to just tell you, they didn't feel like they won. 
they felt like they, ah, I put my faith in Jesus and he's lost the battle. We were expecting him to come in here and set up his kingdom and that is not what happened. And they were just utterly devastated. And I want to just ask you, as you think about life, as you think about culture, does it ever seem like Jesus is losing? Does it ever seem like, oh man, we're, we're, we're trying to you know, protect the church. We, we, want, we want laws that represent Christ and represent what God would want. And the opposite is happening. Um, culture, does it feel like everything's getting better and people are getting more and more spiritual? Or do you look around and go, man, it really looks like things are slipping morally. The, the standards of God are disdained. In fact, if you stand for righteousness, you're hated, you're persecuted, you're called evil. Sometimes it, it feels that way, doesn't it? Well, I just want you to know that that's what the disciples felt like. And then Jesus rose from the dead. That's what we celebrate on Easter. And all of a sudden, they realized God wins. But you want to know something? They realized that, but guess who didn't realize it? The Pharisees. Do you remember when the disciples went out preaching, talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and the disciples would grab them, they would persecute them, they would beat them, they would throw them into prison? They killed the apostle Paul, they killed James, uh, they stoned Stephen for preaching. I just love like this analogy. It's like you got Peter in Acts chapter 2. He preaches a sermon, and thousands of people get saved. And then you have Stephen who preaches a similar sermon. Like the end of it kind of is the same. And Stephen, everybody stones him. And, and do you want to know what happened during that period of time? The Jews felt like they were winning. The Romans felt like they were winning. I mean, even after the resurrection of Jesus, people have had this misperception that they are dominating Christ, that they are dominating his followers. And the Jews all felt like they were dominating the Christians. And then 70 AD rolled around and Rome rolled in and destroyed Jerusalem. You want to know one of the things that Josephus said? Josephus makes reference to this city was condemned by God. There's no way all of this could have happened without God. And he actually makes reference to Jesus predicting its destruction. And so even Josephus sees this as God's judgment. You know, Jesus cleansed the temple when he tipped over the money changers and drove them out. And then he sent Rome to cleanse the temple by wiping it away. So this is something for us to consider. I'll just show you. Here's a picture of Titus. You know, we don't have photographs, but they actually made a statue of him. He was a real person. And um, after he died in 81 AD, they built this a monument in his honor. And you want to know what is on the monument? It's a picture of Titus leaving Jerusalem. And if you'll look at the things up on the top, those are all the things that he carried out of the temple, like a monument to him destroying Jerusalem. You know, just a, a point to make here is that their destruction is earthly, but it points to eternity. Remember Matthew 23? Jesus opens up Matthew 23 by saying, you religious leaders are not going to enter heaven, and nobody who follows you will enter heaven. And then at the end of Matthew 23, he says, after you've rejected people, how will you escape the punishment of hell? So he's talking about eternity. And one of the things for us to remember is as we read through judgment that has fallen, as you look at 70 AD, as you read the history of 70 AD, as you think about the flood, have you ever been troubled by the flood? Um, I heard one person say, why do, why do we put pictures of an ark and animal in nurseries? It's like it's one of the most devastating stories in all of Scripture about how God drowned everybody, and yet we go into our nursery and we decorate our kids' rooms with like a couple giraffes and an ark and all that stuff. That's when God wiped out the world. Why are we like decorating our nurseries with that? And I think it's so easy for us to forget about the ramifications of that, but I do want to say Little kids need to hear the story of the ark, and they actually need to not just learn about the cute little animals that all went into the ark. They need to actually learn the whole story of that.
But is the flood troubling to you? That God put seven people on an ark and drowned the entire world? Is that troubling? Uh, what about Sodom and Gomorrah? You have Sodom and Gomorrah where you have these people that um, they're, they're rebellious and they're hard-hearted and they're wicked. And God actually takes Lot and his family and he throws them out of the city. He says, leave the city. And then he burns that entire city. Is that troubling to you? You know, like we think about um, Nineveh, right? Where God saves and forgives Nineveh and he says, but aren't there children there? Shouldn't I care about the children of the animals? Well, what about in the flood? There were lots of kids there too. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? There were kids in that city. Um, what about the conquest when, when Joshua goes into the land of Canaan and God says, kill every man, woman, and child and burn everything and kill, kill everything. And people look at that and say, how could God be so brutal like that? And, and people do forget that God gave them 400 years to repent. They refused to repent, and then he sent in the nation of Israel. But people, they read that, and they're troubled, and they just say, how could this happen? Or wandering in the wilderness. Remember that before the conquest when Israel went up, and, and they just disobeyed God, and God says, okay, now you're going to wander for 40 years until you all die because you disobeyed me. Now, some of these stories, we actually like to not think about them. We want to push them out of our minds. But something that's very important for us to remember is God did those things. And it is a picture. There's a lot of people, in fact, a huge movement right now to say that hell is not real. Uh, there are people who say they're Christians who are, quote, respected Christian theologians who say that eternal conscious punishment isn't real. It's not going to happen. It's actually uh, people are just annihilated. Um, I have a good friend who wrote a book about that. And the issue with that is that these are people who ignore what God has done in, in Scripture. When you see what God has done, that is a foretaste of eternity. Incredible blessing from fo for following Christ. Unimaginable consequences for rejecting Christ. And that's what we see in this passage. Something that should get our attention. Um, by the way, as you look at history, you can go to Jerusalem today. They've uncovered um, the, the streets. And that's one of the cool things. I walked on this street. And it's amazing. That street was there in Jesus' day. I was walking on the street going, man, this is amazing. Jesus and his disciples may have stepped right here on this rock. But these rocks that are there are what they've uncovered that was actually thrown down during the destruction of Jerusalem where they said not one stone will remain. They'll all be thrown off. You can go look at a pile of rocks. What Jesus said happened. So let's consider the second thing here, and that's that Jesus promises both tribulation and victory. As we look at Matthew chapter 24, by the way, this is a, a challenging passage. Um, some people say that verse 1 and 2 is about 70 AD, and verse 3 through the rest of the chapter is about what happens in the book of Revelation. Some people say it's all happened already in history. <laughs> I can just tell you that hasn't happened. Um, and then there's some people that say verse 3 through 29 is about now, and everything after 29 is about the future. As I think about that, it's not super surprising to me that these things are challenging. What did Jesus tell his disciples? He said, no one knows the day or the hour. I think a lot of times prophecy is hard to figure out, and especially there are so many similarities. Like you read about what happened in 70 AD. It happened in 586 BC too. And you, you see these patterns in history. So it can be confusing. It can be challenging. But I do want to just tell you this. No one knows the exact time of Jesus' return. Yeah, we do know that it will be sudden, it will be unexpected, and it will be obvious to everybody. Nobody is going to miss it. And we need to be living in a spiritually faithful way, anticipating the return of Christ. Can I just tell you, how many people do you know and you see on YouTube who read the news, who see some new thing that happened, and then they start predicting the return of Christ? How many of you guys have seen that? Um, I'm just going to tell you right now, anybody 
who starts calculating the day until Jesus comes back is a false teacher, false prophet. Do not follow them. Do not listen to them. They will make all kinds of arguments that sound great. People send me like videos of people who say the most ridiculous things. And let's just start with the fact that Jesus says nobody knows the day or the hour. And yet how many people in history predict days and hours and people follow them? Why? Jesus has said this clearly. So here's some things that Jesus says that will mark uh, his return. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of his age? Of the age? And Jesus answered them and said, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and will lead many astray. When somebody comes and claims to be Jesus, don't believe them. It's not Jesus. When Jesus comes back, you will know. And you will not just know, everybody will know. Uh, There will be natural disasters um, and political disasters. It says in verse 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. You know, rumors of wars and wars. I mean, think about the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Cold War, Iran and nuclear missiles, or re- even recently North Korea with nuclear. I mean, we're hearing about all this stuff all the time, and yet how many times do people say, oh, oh, it's, this is the time because of some political thing that happens? Or natural disasters, there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and we have people that say, oh, do you realize that the number of earthquakes are increasing? People say things like that. Verse 8, but these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Um, The world's in labor. These things aren't happening. Now, there are also other people that go, oh, Jesus hasn't come and he's never going to come. 2 Peter 2, verse 3 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Like, do you think about the purpose of the gospel? It's not to say, hey, pursue your life. Do what you want to do. If you ask Jesus, he'll come with you. He'll, He'll help you with whatever your plans are. It's like, no, it's a message of repentance you want to go your way, stop doing that, follow Jesus, and go his way. That's the gospel message, and it's about Jesus, how that happens. It goes on, and it says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You know, I, I always used to say that the world doesn't end through global warming, but actually it is global warming. It's just divine global warming. The world's not gonna end because you stop recycling. You you can like rest at peace about that. But the world is gonna end when Jesus comes back, he's gonna burn it, but look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? You know, when we think about that, we look forward to the coming of Christ. Now, this, these next verses in verse 9 Look at this, it says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. A hostile culture sin running rampant, people betraying one another. I I saw this, um, I I love prank TV shows where people do pranks on each other. Like I love watching YouTube videos and people prank each other and and my my family just knows I love that. I I saw this one prank and it was um, this, this guy and this girl are in their house. It's this guy and his girlfriend and this person comes in and they think that they're a murderer. And they're just like this crazy murderer. And, and, and so this is all on camera. And all of a sudden, the boyfriend starts saying, um, take her. 
let me go, you can have her. He starts like throwing his girlfriend under the bus to try to save his life. Now, as I think about that, I don't know how that ever aired on TV. Obviously, that guy didn't know that happened, but who puts a video of themselves on TV? He had to agree to this. Who puts a video of themselves on TV throwing their girlfriend under the bus? Yeah, kill her and let me go. I, I hope she broke up with him after that. But the reality is that when life is on the line, people are going to reject each other. They're going to love Christ. They're going to turn each other in in the midst of that kind of hostile culture. Like, I love the fact that Jesus tells us what to expect. Is that not our current culture where that can happen? And do we see people that will turn on each other, that will surrender each other? Um, That kind of thing is going to happen. In a sense, Josephus did it for the Jews. When he got captured, he, he flipped over to the Romans. That kind of thing happens in history. We need to be willing to stand alone. Uh, we need to be willing to trust God's power in the midst of that disaster. You know, 2 Timothy 4.16, the Apostle Paul says, At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. Paul, at the end of his life, stood alone. And that's what you and I need to be prepared to do. As we see people in the church, as we see Christians defecting, we can't go, man, everybody's leaving. Maybe I should go too. And we can't do that. We need to be willing to say, no, I stand with Christ. I'm going to be faithful. And if I'm alone, I will stand alone. By the way, you're never alone. When you feel outnumbered, you are not outnumbered. You know what Isaiah chapter 40 verse 10 says? It says this, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. God comes with reward and recompense. And it says in verse 15, it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Verse 17, All the nations are counted as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing. Um, I just want you guys to know nobody outvotes God. If we could get the entire world to vote the same way, God outvotes them. And we need to stand with Christ. We are never losing. I love verse 13 in here in Matthew 24. It says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Okay, does that shake you up? That scare you a little bit? When it says, the one who endures to the end will be saved? Like, do you think about some of the things that have happened in history, and do you ever wonder, could I endure to the end? Would I be able to make it to the end? This is, I want to comfort you with two things. First of all, It's not your faithfulness and your diligence and your strength that achieves your salvation. Okay, if I'm good enough, if I'm strong enough, then I can be saved. If I'm weak, if I'm frail, your your salvation is not accomplished by anything you do. It is a work of God changing your heart. It is a work of God regenerating you. Um, That's the great thing about Ephesians chapter 1. Everybody gets into this struggle about predestination and those kinds of things. Here's the amazing thing. When you read about predestination, it's God choosing people beforehand for salvation. But in Ephesians 1, it, it says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Predestination includes everything about your life. God chooses you to be saved. It's not that he predestines you to pray a prayer and then you're going to fail and end up not going to heaven. When you read Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where it says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, it talks about foreknowledge and calling and justification, and it ends with glorification. God's work is to save us to the end. And so if you're worried that maybe I'm not strong enough to maintain my salvation, stop worrying. Um, Jude uh, chapter 1 verse 24 says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, God keeps us faithful. Remaining faithful to the end is an expression of salvation. It is not the cause of salvation. I heard about this martyr who was going to be burned at the stake. 
And so he's in this prison cell, and he's just thinking, man, I just, I don't know if I can make it to the end. I'm afraid that tomorrow, when they pile the wood all around me, and when they light me on fire, I am afraid that I'm going to reject Christ, that I'm going to give in, that I'm not going to be able to be faithful. And as he's in his cell, he sticks his finger over a candle, and he pulls it away, and he's like, man, that's too painful. How am I going to handle actually being burned? And he was afraid of that. And yet, uh, history records that when he was um, finally burned, he never recanted. He was faithful. And in that moment, God gave him the strength. And by the way, there are other people who didn't have the strength in that moment. Uh, you, you, you all remember Peter, right? He denied Christ. And yet he came back, and he was faithful, and the Lord reached out to him. God strengthened him. The gospel is going to go out to the whole world, and we have to stop here. Um, but the gospel is going to go out. It is going to be preached to everybody. Christians are victorious. Christ is victorious. And it's helpful for us to know what's coming so that we'll know what to prepare for, we'll know what to expect. And so we'll, we'll understand. This is an exciting thing. We can be excited and look forward. It's almost like a football game um, where, that you've seen where you know that in the end your team wins, but at halftime they're behind by 60 points. It's kind of fun to watch. It's like, yeah, but, but wait until you see what happens in the last four minutes of the game. It's going to be awesome. And even if it seems like they're losing, you know they're not going to lose. And that's us in the Christian life. But I do want you to know that when we understand what's at stake, that is going to give us a passion for evangelism. We're going to care more about the eternal destiny of our neighbors than where they're parking their cars. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for giving us your word. Help us to be faithful, to love you, to honor you. Thank you for your words of challenge and encouragement. And Lord, we're so thankful that our salvation is not based on our works and our eternal destiny does not rest in our own strength and in our own hands. But Lord, it's your strength and it's your hands. God, I just ask that you would help us not to go through life and forget to view everything from the perspective of eternity. In your name, amen.